What is the secret of the hashish den in the Café de l'Egypte? Sykes Romer, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. Many thanks to those who have stepped up recently and donated at the website. If you can step up with $5 a month, that will really help us out. We'll give you a thank you code in return to help your audiobook library of the classics continue to grow. Everybody wins, and you get to throw in your voice of support in keeping the Classic Tales podcast going strong. Thank you so much for your support. Please step up and donate to the podcast by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Again, the website is classictalesaudiobooks, all one word, dot com. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius continue in the special features of this week's episode in the Classic Tales app. In the app, tap on the box with the bow on the left when you play the episode. That's the special features area. It's like a present. Today we continue our series of The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. It's actually going to be more like eight episodes rather than seven. As with last week and during the run of this series, as you run into objectionable stuff today, feel free to talk about it with your friends. Point out the problems with your kids. Racism thrives in the darkness. Let's clean this out of our culture through honest and informed discussion. Okay, so the personal moment for this week, uh, my son Seven is graduating from high school, and so we had to get his senior portraits taken. My sister Mackenzie, photography by Mackenzie, if you want to check her out on Instagram, she's really an amazing photographer. And she came uh, yesterday, actually, and did his senior portraits. Now, Seven, he's a really interesting kid. He, when he was younger, we live close to downtown Provo, Utah, and so uh, it's a really charming little downtown section with antique shops and restaurants and stuff like that that are very mom-and-pop and specific, and it's, it's really cute. In the summers, he would go on walks and go into all of these stores and talk to the owners and the proprietors and the, the merchants, and, and they were all his friends. And once he took Scylla downtown with him, and he introduced his mom to all of these merchants and shop owners and everything. And they all just recognized, Oh, Seven, how is it going? This little, you know, teenager kid, he was like 14 or 15 or something. And this must be your mom! And so, for him to go with my sister and go to to the downtown area where he kind of, he really grew up doing that, and to get his picture taken uh, in all of these neat places. And Seven also, he wears... Lots of accoutrements. Many come from Comic-Con or uh, the Army-Navy store. He wears a utility belt, like like a straight-up Batman utility belt with a bunch of pouches. Uh, he has a couple, actually. And he had one skeleton glove on, and then, of course, he's an actor, so he had to have his skull for Hamlet. And he wore his theater council cardigan. It was really a, a just a really neat experience having this really unique kid kind of come into his own and be photographed in this place where he grew up with his kind of extended friends, which owned all the shops. So, there we go. That's our personal moment. And now, 
The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 6 of 8, by Sax Romer. Chapter 24, Café de l'Egypte I could see that Nayland Smith counted the escape of the prisoner but a trivial matter, by comparison with the discovery to which it had led us. That the Soho Café should prove to be, if not the headquarters, at least a regular resort of Dr. Fu Manchu, was not too much to hope. The usefulness of such a haunt was evident enough, since it might conveniently be employed as a place of rendezvous for Orientals, and furthermore enable the cunning Chinaman to establish relations with persons likely to prove of service to him. Formerly, he had used an East End opium den for this purpose, and later, the resort known as the Joy Shop. Soho, hitherto, had remained outside the radius of his activity, but that he should have embraced it at last was not surprising, for Soho was the Montmartre of London, and a land of many secrets. "'Why?' demanded Nayland Smith. "'Have I never been told of the existence of this place?' "'That's simple enough,' answered Inspector Weymouth. "'Although we knew of this Café de l'Egypte, "'we have never had the slightest trouble there. "'It's a bohemian resort, "'where the members of the French colony, "'some of the Chelsea art people, "'professional models, and others of that sort, "'foregather at night. "'I've been there myself, as a matter of fact, "'and I've seen people well known in the artistic world come in. "'It has much the same clientele as, say, the Café Royal, "'with a rather heavier sprinkling of Hindu students, "'Japanese and so forth.' It's celebrated for Turkish coffee. What do you know of this Ismail? Nothing much. He's a Levantine Jew. And something more, added Smith, surveying himself in the mirror, and turning to nod his satisfaction to the well-known perruquier, whose services are sometimes requisitioned by the police authorities. We were ready for our visit to the Café de l'Egypte, and Smith, having deemed it inadvisable that we should appear there openly, we had been transformed, under the adroit manipulation of Foster, into a pair of futurists oddly unlike our actual selves. No wigs, no false moustaches had been employed. A change of costume and a few deft touches of some watercolour paint had rendered us unrecognisable by our most intimate friends. It was all very fantastic, very reminiscent of Christmas charades, but the farce had a grim, murderous undercurrent. The life of one dearer to me than life itself hung upon our success. The swamping of the white world by yellow hordes might well be the price of our failure. Weymouth left us at the corner of Frith Street. This was no more than a reconnaissance, but— "'I shall be within hail if I'm wanted,' said the burly detective. And although we stood not in Chinatown, but in the heart of Bohemian London, with popular restaurants about us, I was glad to know that we had so staunch an ally in reserve. The shadow of the great Chinaman was upon me, that strange subconscious voice, with which I had become familiar in the past, awoke within me tonight, not by logic, but by prescience. I knew that the yellow doctor was near. Two minutes' walk brought us to the door of the café. The upper half was of glass, neatly curtained, as were the windows on either side of it, and above the establishment appeared the words Café de l'Egypte. 
Between the second and third word was inserted a gilded device representing the crescent of Islam. We entered. On our right was a room furnished with marble-topped tables, cane-seated chairs, and plush-covered lounges set against the walls. The air was heavy with tobacco smoke. Evidently the café was full, although the night was young. Smith immediately made for the upper end of the room. It was not large, and at first glance I thought that there was no vacant place. Presently, however, I espied two unoccupied chairs, and these we took, finding ourselves facing a pale, bespectacled young man with long fair hair and faded eyes, whose companion, a bold brunette, was smoking one of the largest cigarettes I had ever seen, in a gold and amber cigar holder. A very commonplace Swiss waiter took our orders for coffee, and we began discreetly to survey our surroundings. The only touch of oriental colour thus far perceptible in the Café de l'Egypte was provided by a red-capped Egyptian behind a narrow counter, who presided over the coffee-pots. The patrons of the establishment were in every way typical of Soho, and in the bulk differed not at all from those of the better-known café restaurants. There were several Easterns present, but Smith, having given each of them a searching glance, turned to me with a slight shrug of disappointment. Coffee being placed before us, we sat sipping the thick, sugary beverage, smoking cigarettes and vainly seeking for some clue to guide us to the inner sanctuary consecrated to hashish. It was maddening to think that Caramena might be somewhere concealed in the building, whilst I sat there, inert, amongst this gathering whose conversation was of abnormalities in art, music, and literature. Then, suddenly, the pale young man seated opposite paid his bill, and with a word of farewell to his companion, went out of the café. He did not make his exit by the door through which we entered, but passed up the crowded room to the counter, whereat the Egyptian presided. From some place, hidden in the rear, emerged a black-haired swarthy man, with whom the other exchanged a few words. The pale young artist raised his wide-brimmed hat and was gone, through a curtained doorway on the left of the counter. As he opened it, I had a glimpse of a narrow court beyond. Then the door was closed again, and I found myself thinking of the peculiar eyes of the departed visitor. Even through the thick pebbles of his spectacles, although for some reason I had thought little of the matter at the time, his oddly contracted pupils were noticeable. As the girl, in turn, rose and left the café, but by the ordinary door, I turned to Smith. That man, I began, and paused. Smith was watching covertly, a Hindu, seated at a neighbouring table, who was about to settle his bill. Standing up, the Hindu made for the coffee counter, the swarthy man appeared out of the background, and the Asiatic visitor went out by the door, opening into the court. One quick glance Smith gave me, and raised his hand for the waiter. A few minutes later, we were out in the street again. "'We must find our way to that court,' snapped my friend. "'Let us try back,' I noted a sort of alleyway which we passed just before reaching the café. "'You think the hashish den is in some adjoining building? "'I don't know where it is, Petri, but I know the way to it. "'Into a narrow, gloomy court we plunged, hemmed in by high walls, "'and followed it for ten yards or more. "'An even narrower and less inviting turning,' 
revealed itself on the left. We pursued our way, and presently found ourselves at the back of the Café de l'Egypte. "'There's the door,' I said. It opened into a tiny cul-de-sac, flanked by dilapidated hoardings, and no other door of any kind was visible in the vicinity. Nayland Smith stood tugging at the lobe of his ear almost savagely. "'Where the devil do they go?' he whispered. Even as he spoke the words came a gleam of light through the upper-curtained part of the door, and I distinctly saw the figure of a man in silhouette. "'Stand back!' snapped Smith. We crouched back against the dirty wall of the court, and watched a strange thing happen. The back door of the Café de l'Egypte opened outward. Simultaneously a door, hitherto invisible, set at right angles in the hoarding adjoining, opened inward.' A man emerged from the café and entered the secret doorway. As he did so, the café door swung back and closed the door in the hoarding. "'Very good,' muttered Nayland Smith. "'Our friend Ismail, behind the counter, moves some lever, which causes the opening of one door automatically to open the other. Failing his kindly offices, the second exit from the café de l'Egypte is innocent enough.' Now, what is his next move? I have an idea, Smith, I cried. According to Morrison, the place in which the hashish may be obtained has no windows, but is lighted from above. No doubt it was built for a studio, and has a glass roof. Therefore, come along, snapped Smith, grasping my arm. You have solved the difficulty, Petri. Chapter 25 The House of Hashish Along the leads from Frith Street, we worked our perilous way. From the top landing of a French restaurant, we had gained access, by means of a trap, to the roof of the building. Now the busy streets of Soho were below me, and I clung dizzily to telephone standards and smokestacks, rarely venturing to glance downward upon the cosmopolitan throng, surging, dwarfish, in the lighted depths. Sometimes the bulky figure of Inspector Weymouth would loom up grotesquely against the star-sprinkled blue, as he paused to take breath. The next moment Nayland Smith would be leading the way again, and I would find myself contemplating some sheer well of blackness, with nausea threatening me because it had to be negotiated. None of these gaps were more than a long stride from side to side, but the sense of depth conveyed in the muffled voices and dimmed footsteps from the pavements far below, was almost overpowering. Indeed, I am convinced that for my part I should never have essayed that nightmare journey, were it not that the musical voice of Caramena seemed to be calling to me, her little white hands to be seeking mine, blindly, in the darkness. That we were close to a haunt of the dreadful Chinaman, I was persuaded— Therefore my hatred and my love cooperated to lend me a coolness and a dress, which otherwise I must have lacked. Hello, cried Smith, who was leading. What now? We had crept along the crown of a sloping roof, and were confronted by the blank wall of a building which rose a story higher than that adjoining it. It was crowned by an iron railing, showing blackly against the sky. I paused, breathing heavily and seated astride that dizzy perch. Weymouth was immediately behind me, and— "'It's the Café de l'Egypte, Mr. Smith,' he said. "'If you'll look up, 
you'll see the reflection of the lights shining through the glass roof. Vaguely I discerned Nayland Smith rising to his feet. Be careful, I said. For God's sake, don't slip. Take my hand, he snapped energetically. I stretched forward and grasped his hand. As I did so, he slid down the slope on the right, away from the street, and hung perilously for a moment over the very cul-de-sac upon which the secret door opened. Good, he muttered. There it is, as I had hoped, a window lighting the top of the staircase. Shh, shh! His grip upon my hand tightened, and there, aloft, above the teeming streets of Soho, I sat listening, whilst very faint and muffled footsteps sounded upon an uncarpeted stair. A door banged, and all was silent again, save for the ceaseless turmoil far below. Sit tight and catch, rapped Smith. Into my extended hands he swung his boots, fastened together by the laces. Then, ere I could frame any protest, he disengaged his hand from mine, and pressing his body close against the angle of the building, worked his way around to the staircase window, which was invisible from where I crouched. "'Heavens!' muttered Weymouth, close to my ear. "'I can never travel that road!' "'Nor I,' was my scarcely audible answer. In an anguish of fearful anticipation— I listened for the cry and the dull thud which had proclaimed the fate of my intrepid friend. But no such sounds came to me. Some thirty seconds passed in this fashion, when a subdued call from above caused me to start and look aloft. Nayland Smith was peering down from the railing on the roof. "'Mind your head,' he warned, and over the rail swung the end of a light wooden ladder, lowering it until it rested upon the crest astride of which I sat. Up you come, then Weymouth. Whilst Smith held the top firmly, I climbed up rung by rung, not daring to think of what lay below. My relief when at last I grasped the railing, climbed over, and found myself upon a wooden platform was truly inexpressible. Come on, Weymouth, rapped Nayland Smith. This ladder has to be lowered back down the trap before another visitor arrives. Taking short staccato breaths at every step, Inspector Weymouth ascended, ungainly, that frail and moving stare. Arrived behind me, he wiped the perspiration from his face and forehead. "'I wouldn't do it again for a hundred pounds,' he said hoarsely. "'You don't have to,' snapped Smith. Back he hauled the ladder, shouldered it, and stepping to a square, opening in one corner of the rickety platform, lowered it cautiously down. "'Have you a knife with a corkscrew in it?' he demanded. Weymouth had one, which he produced. Nayland Smith screwed it into the weather-worn frame, and by that means reclosed the trap-door softly. Then, look, he said, there is the house of Hashish. Chapter 26 The Demon's Self through the glass panes of the skylight I looked down upon a scene so bizarre that my actual environment became blotted out, and I was mentally translated to Cairo, to that quarter of Cairo immediately surrounding the famous square of the fountain, to those indescribable streets, wherefrom arises the perfume of deathless evil, wherein, to the wailing, luresome music of the reed pipe, painted dancing girls, sway in the wild abandon of dances that were ancient when Thebes 
was the city of a hundred gates. I seemed to stand again in El Vassar. The room below was rectangular, and around three of the walls were divans strewn with garish cushions, whilst highly coloured eastern rugs were spread about the floor. Four lamps swung on chains, two from either of the beams which traversed the apartment. They were fine examples of native perforated brasswork. Upon the divan some eight or nine men were seated, fully half of whom were orientals or half-castes. Before each stood a little inlaid table bearing a brass tray, and upon the trays were various boxes, some apparently containing sweetmeats, others cigarettes. One or two of the visitors smoked curious long-stemmed pipes and sipped coffee. Even as I leaned on the platform, surveying that incredible scene, incredible in the street of Soho, another devotee of hashish entered, a tall, distinguished-looking man, wearing a light coat over his evening dress. God, whispered Smith beside me, Sir Bingham Pine of the India office. You see, Petrie, you see? This place is a lure, my God! He broke off as I clutched wildly at his arm. The last arrival having taken his seat in a corner of the divan, two heavy curtains draped before an opening at one end of the room parted, and a girl came out, carrying a tray such as already reposed before each of the other men in the room. She wore a dress of dark, lilac-coloured gauze, banded about with gold tissue, and embroidered with gold thread and pearls, and around her shoulders floated, so ethereally that she seemed to move in a violet cloud, a scarf of Delhi muslin. A white yashmak trimmed with gold tissue concealed the lower part of her face. My heart throbbed wildly. I seemed to be choking. By the wonderful hair alone I must have known her, by the great, brilliant eyes, by the shape of those slim, white ankles, by every movement of that exquisite form. It was Caramena. I sprang madly back from the rail, and Smith had my arm in his iron grip. Where are you going? he snapped. Where am I going? I cried. Do you think? What do you propose to do? he interrupted harshly. Do you know so little of the resources of Dr. Fu Manchu that you would throw yourself blindly into that den? Damn it, old man! I know what you suffer, but wait. Wait! We must not act rashly. Our plans must be well considered. He drew me back to my former post, and clapped his hand on my shoulder sympathetically. Clutching the rail like a man frenzied, as indeed I was, I looked down into that infamous den again, striving hard for composure. Caramana listlessly placed the tray upon the little table before Sir Bingham Pine, and withdrew, without vouchsafing him a single glance in acknowledgment of his unconcealed admiration. A moment later, above the dim clamour of London far below, there crept to my ears a sound which completed the magical quality of the scene, rendering that sky platform on a roof of Soho a magical carpet, bearing me to the golden orient. This sound was the wailing of a reed pipe. "'The company is complete,' murmured Smith. "'I had expected this.' Again the curtains parted, and a gazilla glided out into the room. She wore a white dress, clinging closely to her figure from shoulders to hips, where it was clasped by an ornate girdle, and a skirt of sky-blue gauze which clothed her as Io was clothed of old. 
Her arms were covered with gold bangles, and gold bands were clasped about her ankles. Her jet-black, frizzy hair was unconfined and without ornament, and she wore a sort of highly-coloured scarf, so arranged that it effectually concealed the greater part of her face, but served to accentuate the brightness of the great flashing eyes. She had unmistakable beauty of a sort, but how different from the sweet witchery of Caramena! With a bold, swinging grace, she walked down the centre of the room, swaying her arms from side to side and snapping her fingers. "'Zami!' exclaimed Smith. But his exclamation was unnecessary, for already I had recognised the evil Eurasian, who is so efficient a servant of the Chinese doctor. The wailing of the pipes continued, and now faintly I could detect the throbbing of a darabuka. This was Elvasar indeed. The dance commenced, its every phase followed eagerly by the motley clientele of the hashish house. Zami danced with an insolent nonchalance that nevertheless displayed her barbaric beauty to greatest advantage. She was lithe as a serpent, graceful as a young panther. Another lamia came to damn the souls of men with those arts denounced in a long dead age by Apollonius of Tiana. She seemed at once some penanced lady elf, some demon's mistress, or the demon's self. Entranced against my will, I watched the Eurasian until, the barbaric dance completed, she ran from the room, and the curtains concealed her from view. How my mind was torn between hope and fear that I should see Caramena again! How I longed for one more glimpse of her, yet loathed the thought of her presence in that infamous house. She was a captive, of that there could be no doubt, a captive in the hands of the giant criminal whose wiles were endless, whose resources were boundless, whose intense cunning had enabled him for years to weave his nefarious plots in the very heart of civilization and remain immune. Suddenly, that woman is a sorceress, muttered Nayland Smith. There is about her something serpentine, at once repelling and fascinating. It would be of interest, Petrie, to learn what state secrets have been filched from the brains of habitués of this den, and interesting to know from what unsuspected spy-hole Fu Manchu views his nightly catch. If— His voice died away, in a most curious fashion. I have since thought that here— was a case of true telepathy. For as Smith spoke of Fu Manchu's spy-hole, the idea leapt instantly to my mind that this was it, this strange platform upon which we stood. I drew back from the rail, turned, stared at Smith. I read in his face that our suspicions were identical. Then— Look, look, whispered Weymouth. He was gazing at the trap-door, which was slowly rising, inch by inch, inch by inch. Fascinatedly, raptly, we all gazed. A head appeared in the opening, and some vague, reflected light revealed two long, narrow, slightly oblique eyes watching us. They were brilliantly green. "'By God!' came in a mighty roar from Weymouth. "'It's Dr. Fu Manchu!' As one man we leapt for the trap, it dropped with a resounding bang, and I distinctly heard a bolt shot home. 
a guttural voice. The unmistakable, unforgettable voice of Fu Manchu sounded dimly from below. I turned and sprang back to the rail of the platform, peering down into the hashish house. The occupants of the divans were making for the curtained doorway. Some, who seemed to be in a state of stupor, were being assisted by the others and by the man, Ismail, who had now appeared upon the scene. Of Karamana, Zami, or Fu Manchu there was no sign. Suddenly the lights were extinguished. This is maddening, cried Nayland Smith. Maddening! No doubt they have some other exit, some hiding place, and they are slipping through our hands. Inspector Weymouth blew a shrill blast upon his whistle, and Smith, running to the rail of the platform, began to shatter the panes of the skylight with his foot. That's hopeless, sir, cried Weymouth. You'd be torn to pieces on the jagged glass. Smith desisted with a savage exclamation and stood beating his right fist into the palm of his left hand and glaring madly at the Scotland Yard man. I know I'm to blame, admitted Weymouth, but the words were out before I knew I'd spoken. Oh! as an answering whistle came from somewhere in the street below. But will they ever find us? He blew again shrilly. Several whistles replied, and a wisp of smoke floated up from the shattered pane of the skylight. I can smell petrol, muttered Weymouth. An ever-increasing roar, not unlike that of the approaching storm at sea, came from the streets beneath. Whistles skirled, remotely and intimately, and sometimes one voice, sometimes another, would detach itself from this stormy background with weird effect. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the hashish house there went on ceaselessly a splintering and crashing, as though a determined assault were being made upon a door. A light shone up through the skylight. Back once more to the rail I sprang, looked down into the room below, and saw a sight never to be forgotten. Passing from divan to curtained door, from piles of cushions to stacked-up tables, and bearing a flaming torch hastily improvised out of a roll of newspaper, was Dr. Fu Manchu. Everything inflammable in the place had been soaked with petrol, and his gaunt, yellow face, lighted by the ever-growing conflagration, so that truly it seemed not the face of a man, but that of a demon of the hells, the Chinese doctor ignited point after point. Smith! I screamed. We are trapped! That fiend means to burn us alive! And the place will flare like matchwood. It's touch and go this time, Petri. To drop to the sloping roof underneath would mean almost certain death on the pavement. I dragged my pistol from my pocket and began wildly to fire shot after shot into the holocaust below. But the awful Chinaman had escaped, probably by some secret exit reserved for his own use, for certainly he must have known that escape into the court was now cut off. Flames were beginning to hiss through the skylight. A tremendous crackling and crashing told of the glass destroyed. Smoke spurted up through the cracks of the boarding upon which we stood, and a great shout came from the crowd in the streets. In the distance, a long, long way off, it seemed, was born a new note in the stormy human symphony. It grew in volume. It seemed to be sweeping down upon us nearer, nearer, nearer. Now it was in the streets immediately adjoining the Café de l'Egypte, and now, blessed sound, it culminated in a mighty surging cheer. The fire engines, said Weymouth coolly, and raised himself on to the lower rail, for the platform was growing uncomfortably hot. Tongues of fire licked out venomously from beneath my feet. 
I leapt for the railing in turn and sat astride it, as one end of the flooring burst into flame. The heat from the blazing room above which we hung suspended was now all but insupportable, and the fumes threatened to stifle us. My head seemed to be bursting. My throat and lungs were consumed by internal fires. "'Merciful heavens!' whispered Smith. "'Will they reach us in time?' "'Not if they don't get here within the next thirty seconds,' answered Weymouth grimly, and changed his position, in order to avoid a tongue of flame that hungrily sought to reach him. Nayland Smith turned and looked me squarely in the eyes. Words trembled on his tongue, but those words were never spoken. For a brass helmet appeared suddenly out of the smoke-banks, followed almost immediately by a second. "'Quick, sir, this way! Jump! I'll catch you!' Exactly what followed I never knew. But there was a mighty burst of cheering, a sense of tension released, and it became a task less agonizing to breathe. Feeling very dazed, I found myself in the heart of a huge, excited crowd with Weymouth beside me, and Nayland Smith holding my arm. Vaguely, I heard, They have the man Ismail, but— A hollow crash drowned the end of the sentence. A shower of sparks shot up into the night's darkness high above our heads. That's the platform gone. Chapter 27 Room with the Golden Door One night, early in the following week, I sat at work upon my notes, dealing with our almost miraculous escape from the blazing hashish house, when the clock of St. Paul's began to strike midnight. I paused in my work, leaning back wearily and wondering what detained Nayland Smith so late. Some friends from Burma had carried him off to a theatre, and in their good company I had thought him safe enough. Yet with the omnipresent menace of Fu Manchu hanging over our heads, always I doubted, always I feared, if my friend should chance to be delayed abroad at night. What a world of unreality was mine in those days! Jostling as I did, commonplace folk and commonplace surroundings, I yet knew myself removed from them, knew myself all but alone in my knowledge of the great and evil man, whose presence in England had diverted my life into these strange channels. But despite all of my knowledge, and despite the infinitely greater knowledge and wider experience of Nayland Smith, what did I know, what did he know, of the strange organization called the Sea Fan, and of its most formidable member, Dr. Fu Manchu? Where did the dreadful Chinaman hide, with his murderers, his poisons, and his nameless death agents? What roof in broad England sheltered Caramana, the companion of my dreams, the desire of every waking hour? I uttered a sigh of despair, when to my unbounded astonishment there came a loud rap upon the window-pane. Leaping up, I crossed to the window, threw it widely open, and leant out, looking down into the court below. It was deserted. In no other window visible to me was any light to be seen, and no living thing moved in the shadows beneath. The clamour of Fleet Street's diminishing traffic came dimly to my ears. The last stroke from St. Paul's quivered through the night. What was the meaning of the sound which had disturbed me? Surely I could not have imagined it. Yet right, left, above and below, from the cloisteresque shadows on the east of the court to the blank wall of the building on the west, no living thing stirred. Quietly, 
I reclosed the window and stood by it for a moment, listening. Nothing occurred, and I returned to the writing table, puzzled but in no sense alarmed. I resumed the seemingly interminable record of the Seafan mysteries, and I had just taken up my pen when two loud raps sounded upon the pane behind me. In a trice I was at the window, had thrown it open, and was craning out. Practically joking was not characteristic of Nayland Smith, and I knew of none other likely to take such a liberty. As before, the court below proved to be empty. Someone was softly rapping at the door of the chambers. I turned swiftly from the open window, and now came fear. Momentarily, the icy finger of panic touched me, for I thought myself invested upon all sides. Who could this late caller be, this midnight visitor who rapped, ghostly, in preference to ringing the bell? From the table drawer I took out a browning pistol, slipped it into my pocket, and crossed in the narrow hallway. It was in darkness, but I depressed the switch, lighting the lamp. Toward the closed door I looked, as the soft rapping was repeated. I advanced then hesitated, and strung up to a keen pitch of fearful anticipation, stood there in doubt. The silence remained unbroken for the space, perhaps of half a minute. Then again came the ghostly rapping. "'Who's there?' I cried loudly. Nothing stirred outside the door, and still I hesitated. To some who listen, my hesitancy may brand me childishly timid. But I, who had met many of the dreadful creatures of Dr. Fu Manchu, had good reason to fear whomsoever or whatsoever rapped at midnight upon my door. Was I likely to forget the great half-human ape with the strength of four lusty men which once he had loosed upon us? Had I not cause to remember his Burmese decoits and Chinese stranglers? No, I had just cause for dread as I fully recognized, when snatching the pistol from my pocket, I strode forward, flung wide the door, and stood peering out into the black gulf of the stairhead. Nothing, no one appeared. Conscious of a longing to cry out, if only that the sound of my own voice might reassure me, I stood listening. The silence was complete. "'Who's there?' I cried again and loudly enough to arrest the attention of the occupant of the chambers opposite, if he chanced to be at home. None replied, and finding this phantom silence more nerve-wracking than any clamour, I stepped outside the door, and my heart gave a great leap, then seemed to remain inert in my breast. Right and left of me, upon either side of the doorway, stood a dim figure. I had walked deliberately into a trap. The shock of the discovery paralyzed my mind for one instant. In the next, and with the sinister pair closing swiftly upon me, I stepped back. I stepped into the arms of some third assailant, who must have entered my chambers by the way of the open window and silently crept up behind me. So much I realized, and no more. A bag, reeking of some hashish-like perfume, was clapped over my head and pressed firmly against my mouth and nostrils. I felt myself to be stifling, dying, 
and dropping into a bottomless pit. When I opened my eyes, I failed for some time to realize that I was conscious, in the true sense of the word, that I was really awake. I sat upon a bench, covered with a red carpet, in a fair-sized room, very simply furnished, in the Chinese manner, but having a two-leaved gilded door which was shut. At the further end of this apartment was a dais, some three feet high, also carpeted with red, and upon it was placed a very large cushion covered with a tiger skin. Seated cross-legged upon the cushion was a Chinaman of most majestic appearance. His countenance was truly noble and gracious, and he was dressed in a yellow robe lined with marten fur. His hair, which was thickly splashed with grey, was confined upon the top of his head by three golden combs, and a large diamond was suspended from his left ear. A pearl-embroidered black cap, surmounted by the red coral ball denoting the mandarin's rank, lay upon a second smaller cushion beside him. Leaning back against the wall, I stared at his personage with a dreadful fixity, for I counted him the figment of a disarranged mind. But palpably he remained before me, fanning himself complacently, and watching me with every mark of kindly interest. Evidently perceiving that I was fully alive to my surroundings, the Chinaman addressed a remark to me in a tongue quite unfamiliar. I shook my head dazedly. Ah, he commented in French, you do not speak my language. I do not, I answered, also in French. But since it seems we have one common tongue, what is the meaning of the outrage to which I have been subjected, and who are you? As I spoke the words, I rose to my feet, but was immediately attacked by vertigo which compelled me to resume my seat upon the bench. "'Come pause yourself,' said the Chinaman, taking a pinch of snuff from a silver vase which stood convenient to his hand. "'I have been compelled to adopt certain measures in order to bring about this interview. In China such measures are not unusual, but I recognize that they are out of accordance with your English ideas.' "'Emphatically they are,' I replied. "'The placid manner of this singularly imposing old man "'rendered proper resentment difficult. "'A sense of futility and of unreality claimed me. "'I felt that this was a dream world governed by dream laws. "'You have good reason,' he continued, "'calmly raising the pinch of snuff to his nostrils. "'Good reason to distrust all that is Chinese.' Therefore, when I dispatched my servants to your abode, knowing you to be alone, I instructed them to observe every law of courtesy compatible with the sure invitation. Hence, I pray you, absolve me, for I intended no offence. Words failed me altogether. Wonder succeeded wonder. What was coming? What did it all mean? I have selected you rather than Mr. Commissioner Nayland Smith, continued the Mandarin, as the recipient of those secrets which I am about to impart, for the reason that your friend might possibly be acquainted with my appearance. I will confess there was a time when I must have regarded you with animosity, 
as one who sought the destruction of the most ancient and potent organization in the world, the Sifan. As he uttered the words, he raised his right hand and touched his forehead, his mouth, and finally his breast, a gesture reminiscent of that employed by Muslims. But my first task is to assure you, he resumed, that the activities of the Order are in no way inimical to yourself, your country, or your king. The extensive ramifications of the Order have recently been employed by a certain Dr. Fu Manchu for his own ends, and since he was, I admit it, a high official, a schism has been created in our ranks. Exactly a month ago, sentence of death was passed upon him by the sublime prince, and since I myself must return immediately to China, I look to Nayland Smith to carry out that sentence. I said nothing. I remained bereft of the power of speech. The sea fan, he added, repeating the gesture with his hand, disown Dr. Fu Manchu and his servants. Do with them what you will. In this envelope, he held up a sealed package, is information which should prove helpful to Mr. Smith. I have now a request to make. You are conveyed here in the garments which you wore at the time that my servants called upon you. I was hatless and wore red leathern slippers. An overcoat and a hat can doubtless be found to suit you, temporarily, and my request is that you close your eyes until permission is given to open them. Is there any of my listeners in doubt respecting my reception of this proposal? Remember my situation. Remember the bizarre happening that had led up to it. Remember, too, ere judging me, that whilst I could not doubt the unseen presence of Chinamen unnumbered surrounding that strange apartment with the golden door, I have not the remotest clue to guide me in determining where it was situated. Since the duration of my unconsciousness was immeasurable, the place in which I found myself might have been anywhere within, say, thirty miles of Fleet Street. I agree, I said. The Mandarin bowed composedly. Kindly close your eyes, Dr. Petrie, he requested, and fear nothing. No danger threatens you. I obeyed. Instantly sounded the note of a gong, and I became aware that the golden door was open. A soft voice, evidently that of a cultured Chinaman, spoke quite close to my ear. Keep your eyes tightly closed, please, and I will help you on with this coat. The envelope you will find in the pocket, and here is a tweed cap. Now take my hand. Wearing the borrowed garments, I was led from the room, along a passage, down a flight of thickly carpeted stairs, and so out of the house into the street. Faint evidences of remote traffic reached my ears as I was assisted into a car and placed in a cushioned corner. The car moved off, proceeded for some distance. Then, "'Allow me to help you to descend,' said the soft voice. "'You may open your eyes in thirty seconds.' I was assisted from the step onto the pavement, and I heard the car being driven back. 
Having slowly counted thirty, I opened my eyes and looked about me. This, and not the fevered moment when first I had looked upon the room with the golden door, seemed to be my true awakening, for about me was comprehensible world, the homely streets of London, with deserted Portland Place stretching away on the one hand, and a glimpse of midnight Regent Street obtainable on the other. The clock of the neighbouring church struck one. My mind yet dull with wonder of it all, I walked on to Oxford Circus, and there obtained a taxicab, in which I drove to Fleet Street. Discharging the man, I passed quickly under the time-worn archway into the court and approached our stair. Indeed, I was about to ascend, when someone came racing down and almost knocked me over. Petri! Petri! Thank God you're safe! It was Nayland Smith, his eyes blazing with excitement, as I could see by the dim light of the lamp near the archway, and his hands, as he clapped them on my shoulders, quivering tensely. Petri! He ran on impulsively, and speaking with extraordinary rapidity. I was detained by a most ingenious trick, and arrived only five minutes ago to find you missing, the window wide open, and signs of hooks, evidently to support a rope ladder, having been attached to the ledge. But where were you going? Weymouth has just rung up. We have indisputable proof that the Mandarin Kai Ming, whom I had believed to be dead, and whom I know for a high office of the sea fan, is actually in London. It's neck or nothing this time, Petrie. I'm going straight to Portland Place. To the Chinese legation? Exactly. Perhaps I can save you a journey, I said slowly. I have just come from there. Chapter 28 The Mandarin Kai Ming Nayland Smith strode up and down the little sitting-room, tugging almost savagely at the lobe of his left ear. Tonight his increasing greyness was very perceptible, and with his feverishly bright eyes staring straight before him, he looked haggard and ill, despite the deceptive tan of his skin. "'Petre,' he began in his abrupt fashion, "'I am losing confidence in myself.' "'Why?' I asked in surprise. "'I hardly know.' "'but for some occult reason I feel afraid.' "'Afraid?' "'Exactly, afraid. "'There is some deep mystery here that I cannot fathom. "'In the first place, "'if they had really meant you to remain ignorant "'of the place at which the episodes described by you occurred, "'they would scarcely have dropped you at the end of Portland Place. "'You mean—' "'I mean that I don't believe you were taken to the Chinese legation at all. "'Undoubtedly you saw the Mandarin Kai Ming.' I recognize him from your description. You have met him, then? No, but I know those who have. He is undoubtedly a very dangerous man, and it is just possible— He hesitated, glancing at me strangely. It is just possible, he continued musingly, that his presence marks the beginning of the end. Fu Manchu's health may be permanently impaired, and Kai Ming may have superseded him. "'But if what you suspect, Smith, be only partly true, "'with what object was I seized and carried to that singular interview? "'What was the meaning of the whole solemn farce?' "'Its meaning remains to be discovered,' he answered. "'But that the Mandarin is amicably disposed, I refuse to believe. "'You may dismiss the idea. "'In dealing with Kai Ming, we are to all intents and purposes dealing with Fu Manchu. "'To me, this man's presence means one thing.' 
we are about to be subjected to attempts along slightly different lines. I was completely puzzled by Smith's tone. You evidently know more of this man Kai Ming than you have yet explained to me, I said. Nayland Smith pulled out the blackened briar and began rapidly to load it. He is a graduate, he replied, of the Lama College, or Monastery of Rash Shuran. This does not enlighten me. Having got his pipe going well, What do you know of animal magnetism? snapped Smith. The question seemed so wildly irrelevant that I stared at him in silence for some moments. Then, certain powers sometimes grouped under that head are recognized in every hospital today, I answered shortly. Quite so. And the monastery of Rash Shuran is entirely devoted to the study of the subject. Do you mean that that gentle old man, Petre, a certain Monsieur Sokolov, a Russian gentleman whose acquaintance I made in Mandalay, related to me an episode that took place at the house of the Mandarin Kai Ming in Canton. It actually occurred in the presence of Monsieur Sokolov, and therefore is worthy of your close attention. He had had certain transactions with Kai Ming, and at their conclusion received an invitation to dine with the Mandarin. The entertainment took place in a sort of loggia, or open pavilion, immediately in front of which was an ornamental lake, with numerous water-lilies growing upon its surface. One of the servants, I think his name was Lee, dropped a silver bowl containing orange flower-water for pouring upon the hands, and some of the contents lightly sprinkled Monsieur Sokolov's garments. Kai Ming spoke no word of rebuke, Petri. He merely looked at Lee with those deceptive gazelle-like eyes. Lee, according to my acquaintance's account, began to make palpable and increasingly anxious attempts to look anywhere rather than into the mild eyes of his implacable master. Monsieur Sokolov, who, up to that moment, had entertained similar views to your own respecting his host, regarded this unmoving stare of Kai Ming's as a sort of kindly because silent reprimand. The behaviour of the unhappy Lee very speedily served to disabuse his mind of that delusion. Petri. The man grew livid. His whole body began to twitch and shake, as though an ague had attacked him, and his eyes protruded hideously from their sockets. Monsieur Sokolov assured me that he felt himself turning pale, when Kai Ming very slowly raised his right hand and pointed to the pond. Li began to pant, as though engaged in a life-and-death struggle with a physically superior antagonist. He clutched at the posts of the loggia, with frenzied hands and a bloodied froth came to his lips. He began to move backward, step by step, step by step, all the time striving, with might and main, to prevent himself from doing so. His eyes were set rigidly upon Kai Ming, like the eyes of a rabbit, fascinated by a python. Kai Ming continued to point. Right to the brink of the lake the man retreated, and there, for one dreadful moment, he paused and uttered a sort of groaning sob. Then, clenching his fists frenziedly, he stepped back into the water and immediately sank among the lilies. Kai Ming continued to gaze fixedly at the spot where bubbles were rising, and presently up came the livid face of the drowning man, still having those glazed eyes turned immovably upon the mandarin. For nearly five seconds that hideous, distorted face gazed from amid the mass of blooms, 
then it sank again, and rose no more. What? I cried. Do you mean to tell me? Kai Ming struck a gong. Another servant appeared with a fresh bowl of water, and the Mandarin calmly resumed his dinner. I drew a deep breath and raised my hand to my head. It is almost unbelievable, I said. But what completely passes my comprehension is his allowing me to depart unscathed, having once held me in his power. Why the long harangue and the pose of friendship? That point is not so difficult. What? That does not surprise me in the least. You may recollect that Dr. Fu Manchu entertains for you an undoubted affection, distinctly Chinese in its character, but nevertheless an affection. There is no intention of assassinating you, Petri. I am the selected victim. I started up. Smith, what do you mean? What danger, other than that which has threatened us for over two years, threatens us tonight? Now you come to the point which does puzzle me. I believe I stated a while ago that I was afraid. You have placed your finger upon the cause of my fear. What threatens us tonight? He spoke the words in such a fashion that they seemed physically to chill me. The shadows of the room grew menacing. The very silence became horrible. I longed with a terrible longing for company, for the strength that is in numbers. I would have had the place full to overflowing, for it seemed that we two, condemned by the mysterious organization called the Sea Fan, were at that moment surrounded by the entire arsenal of horrors at the command of Dr. Fu Manchu. I broke that morbid silence. My voice had assumed an unnatural tone. Why do you dread this man, Kai Ming, so much? Because he must be aware that I know he is in London. Well, Dr. Fu Manchu has no official status. Long ago, his legation denied all knowledge of his existence, but the Mandarin Kai Ming is known to every diplomat in Europe, Asia, and American almost. Only I, and now yourself, know that he is a high official of the Si Fan. Kai Ming is aware that I know. Why, therefore, does he risk his neck in London? He relies upon his national cunning, Petri. He is aware that I hold evidence to hang him, either here or in China. He relies upon one thing, upon striking first and striking surely. Why is he so confident? I do not know. Therefore, I am afraid. Again a cold shudder ran icily through me. A piece of coal dropped lower into the dying fire, and my heart leapt wildly. Then in a flash I remembered something. Smith, I cried. The letter. We have not looked at the letter. Nayland Smith laid his pipe upon the mantelpiece and smiled grimly. From his pocket he took out a square piece of paper and thrust it close under my eyes. I remembered it as I passed your borrowed garment, which bears no maker's name, on my way to the bedroom for matches, he said. The paper was covered with Chinese characters. What does it mean? I demanded breathlessly. Smith uttered a short, mirthless laugh. It states that an attempt of a particularly dangerous nature is to be made upon my life tonight, and it recommends me to guard the door, and advises that you watch the window overlooking the court, and keep your pistol ready for instant employment. He stared at me oddly. How should you act in the circumstances, Petri? 
I should strongly distrust such advice. Yet, what else can we do? There are several alternatives, but I prefer to follow the advice of Kai Ming. The clock of St. Paul's chimed the half-hour. Half-past two. Chapter 29. Lama Sorcery From my post in the chair by the window, I could see two sides of the court below. That immediately opposite, with the entrance to some chambers situated there, and that on the right, with the cloisteresque arches beyond which lay a maze of old-world passages and stairs, whereby one who knew the torturous navigation might come ultimately to the embankment. It was this side of the court which lay in deepest shadow. By altering my position quite slightly, I could command a view of the arched entrance on the left, with its pale lamp in an iron bracket above, and of the high blank wall, whose otherwise unbroken expanse it interrupted. All was very still. Only on occasions the passing of a vehicle along Fleet Street would break the silence. The nature of the danger that threatened I was wholly unable to surmise. Since, my pistol on the table beside me, I sat on guard at the window, and Smith, also armed, watched the outer door. It was not apparent by what agency the shadowy enemy could hope to come at us. Something strange I detected in Nayland Smith's manner, however, which had induced me to believe that he suspected, if he did not know, what form of menace hung over us in the darkness. One thing in particular was puzzling me extremely. If Smith doubted the good faith of the sender of the message, why had he acted upon it? Thus my mind worked, in endless and profitless cycles, whilst my eyes were ever searching the shadows below me. And as I watched, wondering vaguely why Smith at his post was so silent, presently I became aware of the presence of a slim figure over by the arches on the right. This discovery did not come suddenly, nor did it surprise me. I merely observed without being conscious of any great interest in the matter— that someone was standing in the court below, looking up at me where I sat. I cannot hope to explain my state of mind at that moment, to render understandable by contrast with the cold fear which had visited me so recently, the utter apathy of my mental attitude. To this day I cannot recapture the mood, and for a very good reason, though one that was not apparent to me at the time. It was the Eurasian girl Zami, who was standing there, looking up at the window. Silently, I watched her. Why was I silent? Why did I not warn Smith of the presence of one of Dr. Fu Manchu's servants? I cannot explain. Although later, the strangeness of my behavior may become in some measure understandable. Zami raised her hand, beckoning to me, then stepped back, revealing the presence of a companion, hitherto masked by the dense shadows that lay under the arches. This second watcher moved slowly forward, and I perceived him to be none other than the Mandarin Kai Ming. This I noted with interest, but with a sort of impersonal interest, as I might have watched the entrance of a character upon the stage of a theatre. Despite the feeble light, I could see his benign countenance very clearly. But far from being excited, 
a dreamy contentment possessed me. I actually found myself hoping that Smith would not intrude upon my reverie. What a fascinating pageant it had been, the Fu Manchu drama, from the moment that I had first set eyes upon the Yellow Doctor. Again, I seemed to be enacting my part in that scene, two years ago and more, when I had burst into the bare room above Shen Yan's opium den and had stood face to face with Dr. Fu Manchu. He wore a plain yellow robe, its hue almost identical with that of his gaunt, hairless face. His elbows rested upon the dirty table, and his pointed chin upon his long, bony hands. Into those uncanny eyes I stared, those eyes, long, narrow, and slightly oblique, their brilliant cat-like greenness, sometimes horribly filmed, like the eyes of some grotesque bird. Thus it began, and from this point I was carried on, step by step through every episode, great and small. It was such a retrospect as passes through the mind of one drowning. With a vividness that was terrible yet exquisite, I saw Caramena, my lost love. I saw her first, wrapped in a hooded opera cloak, with her flower-like face and glorious dark eyes raised to me. I saw her in the gauzy eastern raiment of a slave girl, and I saw her in the dress of a gypsy. Through moments sweet and bitter I lived again, through hours of suspense and days of ceaseless watching, through the long months of that first summer, when my unhappy love came to me, and on, on, interminably on. For years I lived again beneath the ghastly yellow cloud, I searched throughout the land of Egypt for Karamana, and knew once more the sorrow of losing her. Time ceased to exist for me. Then, at the end of these strenuous years, I came at last to my meeting with Kai Ming in the room with the golden door. At this point my visionary adventures took a new turn. I sat again upon the red-covered couch and listened, half stupefied, to the placid speech of the Mandarin. Again I came under the spell of his singular personality, and closing my eyes I consented to be led from the room. But having crossed the threshold, a sudden awful doubt passed my mind, arrow-like. The hand that held my arm was bony and clawish. I could detect the presence of incredibly long fingernails, nails long as those of some buried vampire of the Black Ages. Choking down a cry of horror, I opened my eyes, heedless of the promise given but a few moments earlier, and looked into the face of my guide. It was Dr. Fu Manchu. Never, dreaming or waking, have I known a sensation identical with that which now clutched my heart. I thought that it must be death. For ages, untold ages, eons longer than the world has known, I looked into that still, awful face. Into those unnatural green eyes, I jerked my hand free from the Chinaman's clutch and sprang back. As I did so, I became miraculously translated from the threshold of the room with the golden door to our chambers in the court adjoining Fleet Street. I came into full possession of my faculties, or believed so at the time. I realized that I had nodded at my post, that I had dreamed a strange dream, but I realized something else. A ghoulish presence was in the room. 
Snatching up my pistol from the table, I turned. Like some evil jinn of Arabian lore, Dr. Fu Manchu, surrounded by a slight mist, stood looking at me. Instantly, I raised the pistol, leveled it steadily at the high, dome-like brow, and fired. There could be no possibility of missing at such short range. No possibility whatever. And in the very instant of pulling the trigger, the mist cleared. The lineaments of Dr. Fu Manchu melted magically. This was not the Chinese doctor who stood before me, at whose skull I still was pointing the deadly little weapon, into whose brain I had fired the bullet. It was Nayland Smith. Kai Ming, by means of the unholy arts of the lamas of Rashuran, had caused me to murder my best friend. Smith, I whispered huskily, God forgive me, what have I done? What have I done? I stepped forward to support him ere he fell, but utter oblivion closed down upon me, and I knew no more. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 6 of 8, by Sax Romer. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Or if that's not in your budget, please leave us a review so more people can find us and allow classic literature to awaken their better selves. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.